0: I'm Kimberly C. Paul. Today, we talk with Dr. Robert Fine. Along with his palliative care team at Baylor Medical Center, they realize they can't save everyone, but they desire to preserve the quality of life for everyone. How do we become the architect of our own destiny? Throughout two decades of working with the dying, I think I've discovered the secrets to dying well in America. We must learn to build the pathways to our last chapter, to create the blueprints that reflects our individual lives, and values. Knowledge is power, and if we desire a death that reflects our life, we must become the designer. I just wanted to say thank you for joining our podcast today. I was intrigued from the moment I read an article back in October 2017 about you, and I just had to meet you.
1: Thank you. It's, it's really um, a pleasure to participate in this. I think you've got a, a fascinating program and I'm happy to be part of it.
0: Well, you've been working in this field for, gosh, even before there were regulations, before that it was defined from a very young internist to even shaping some of your medical career. You know, how have you seen end-of-life services evolve over the last 30-some years?
1: hospice uh first came to this country in 75 and, and hospice first came to dallas texas where i had been in medical school and then starting residency in 1978 my internship year and one of my early mentors was an oncologist during my second year of residency said uh hey fine i'm, I'm leaving baylor and i said gee where are you going he says well i'm I'm going out to Florida to join this new innovative hospice company. And again, hospice had barely arrived in Dallas, and I'm kind of going, what?
0: Hmm?
1: how's that? And this was back at a time in oncology when our, our oncologists, frankly, had very few drugs to give, and they were very toxic. Um, and we confronted death and dying in the hospital very poorly we being medicine as a whole so almost everyone who died in the 70s in american hospitals was put through cpr as an example wow even though you knew death was coming um and you had darn good reasons to believe cpr wouldn't work we did it in fact in, in my era of training we literally performed cpr on cadavers rigor mortis maybe had set in and and when we asked why we were doing this we said well it's good practice so when you really need to save a life you know how to do it okay so that's death, death and dying in american hospitals when i'm in medical school and coming out into residency is not very pretty Hospice comes, and since then, certainly hospice penetration, that is the percentage of Americans who die with the benefits of hospice services, has grown dramatically. You can correct me on this, but I think it's over 50 percent now.
0: Yeah, and in a lot of states, there it is over 50 percent.
1: Yeah, it's 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 quite dramatic, and yet hospice comes in very late, and the length of stay on hospice is very short. Um, so what's what's changed well i think one of the big changes when you say well how has end-of-life care changed over the years increasingly with the advent of the palliative care movement we don't refer to it as end-of-life care any longer we refer to it as serious illness care and what this has done is it's it's allowed teams of professionals With the expertise in treating multidimensional suffering, physical, emotional, social, and spiritual suffering, to get involved with patients and families much sooner than if you define it as care only at the end of life. I I hope that makes sense.
0: You know, let me ask you this, because I was just sitting in one of our, in Wilmington, we have this film festival called Kukulorus, and I... There was a work in progress about um, a, the up-and-coming death of doulas. And the question someone asked, what is palliative care? And I still am having a hard time really bridging that gap to community members and explaining what that is. Okay. Because palliative care is not always end of life. Correct. And could you... Could, could you help us? Yeah. Um, and, I, and I asked several palliative care physicians to do it, but I feel like we need to be repetitive um, in, to really define what is palliative care.
1: So w- we define it as a multidisciplinary team-based process to relieve suffering and improve the quality of life for patients and families facing serious illness. Let's break that down a little bit. It's not all about the doctor. It's a multidisciplinary team. And in that sense, it could sound kind of similar to hospice. But if truth be known, surgery relies on a multidisciplinary team. Okay? So medicine, well-practiced in any field, is multidisciplinary. When we talk about suffering, the suffering we treat isn't just physical suffering, i.e. pain or nausea or shortness of breath. But it can be the emotional suffering, the social suffering of the family, or the spiritual suffering of the patient and family when confronting a serious, often but not always, life-limiting illness. Very important to understand that, that palliative care well practice involves caring more than just the terminally ill patient and or it involves seeing the patient who will become terminally ill at some point much earlier in the course of their illness. Um, Palliative care is offered simultaneous with all other appropriate medical treatment. We often like to say at any age or any stage of a serious illness. Um, And although palliative care is not hospice itself, because again, patients on palliative care may be maintaining active treatment of their underlying serious illness. All hospice is itself palliative. It's been a a hard concept for people to wrap their minds around. I I can remember sitting on um, the ethics committee of a a very large, uh, prominent national hospice organization. It was the Corporate Ethics Committee. Um, And on that committee was myself and uh, Andy Billings and Richard Payne, other leaders in the palliative care movement. I remember when Andy said at this corporate uh, ethics committee meeting, hospice ethics committee meeting, he said, well, I'm going to open a palliative care service at Mass General. I'm guessing this is 98, 99, I'm guessing. And uh, I remember the head of the hospice agency, who was a huge pioneer in, in hospice said, how dare you do that? That's our business. And and Andy had to (laughs) to carefully explain, no, we're hoping to get involved much earlier than you can get involved. Suffering starts, in a serious illness, suffering starts way before the patient um, has reached a stage where they would be hospice appropriate. So if you look at, metast- we have the best data in the world of metastatic solid tumors. We have pretty good reason to believe, evidence-based reasons to believe, that if, if a patient has metastatic solid cancer, and they're seen by palliative care teams at diagnosis, they actually live longer. They certainly get better, more comprehensive support, enhanced symptom management. If people see palliative care as something only for the very end of life, then we will look a lot like hospice. Does that make
0: sense? It does. It does. And I think one of the big things is with palliative, which you've defined really great, is that you're also looking at what what the community tends to refer to as aggressive treatment while you are on palliative care. That You don't have to stop any treatment to become um, a consult with, right. with palliative care.
1: Right. We see, um, so, so for example, um, I'm seeing a, uh, this past week I've been on call and seen a young woman with metastatic melanoma uh, came in in a pain crisis. And I said to her, you know, I'm going to need to start you on opioids by continuous infusion to get your pain under control. And I'm going to give you some steroids. I'm going to do some other things and give us 24 hours and maybe even less than that. We're going to have your pain under control. But the best way to control your pain is going to be the immunotherapy that you're about to start for your melanoma. Because God willing, when that melanoma shrinks, guess what happens? Your pain gets better. And um, you might not need so many of my opioids. When we look at, we collect a lot of data on our palliative care service. And and, uh, this coming year, we will see across Baylor, Scott & White Health, um, close to 8,000 patients and their families. And we'll probably provide another 20,000 follow-up visits. When we look at all those patients, about 20% will, in fact, die in the hospital. That means 80% are going home. Now, a good portion of those are going home with hospice, but a good portion of those are going home to follow up in the outpatient setting to maintain what we call disease-directed therapy while we are focusing on their suffering, again, physical, emotional, social, or spiritual, and continuing to support them. So, palliative care again. If I, if you could see me, often often I make a great big circle with my arms above my head and say, "This is palliative care." This great big circle, and then I bring my my hands together and make a small circle and say, "This is hospice."
0: Mm.
1: A subset of palliative care.
0: Wow, that! Thank you for that explanation because it, it's so confusing, even to some of us. St- in the healthcare system who haven't uh, dealt with palliative or hospice care, e- even as individuals coming out of medical school and nursing school, these are very foreign terminologies and, and definitions that that hopefully we're doing a better job when it comes to uh, educating those who are serving the seriously ill. But you know what? Texas Texas really did something radical back in 1999. And I want to talk a little bit about it because they, they may something law. They wanted to redefine what terminal illness and irreversible illness is in Texas. Talk to me a little bit about that and how has that impacted how uh, Texas is looking at end of life?
1: Sure. Um, Texas was the second state to have a living will statute. Um, It was actually called the Texas Natural Death Act and it was written in 1976. And like all the end-of-life statutes or living will statutes across the country, it uh, conflated terminal and irreversible illness. I seem to remember the language in Texas said, if I have a terminal and irreversible illness, so it conflated those two terms, and then it also defined terminal as, and my death is imminent, as certified by two physicians. Then I direct the following things, and the living will could only be used to direct the withholding of treatment at that point. So, pretty routinely in Texas and I think other states, living wills were often ignored because a doctor, number one, would say, well, I don't know if their death is imminent yet. I won't know that until maybe hours or a few days before they die. Right? And and who is to say what imminent was, really? Right. Right. And conflating terminal and irreversible was a huge problem in geriatrics, which was my, my first board certification was internal medicine. My second was geriatrics. Um, this is in the pre-palliative care world. And I was a, a nursing home medical director, and I saw a lot of elderly patients. And you would have elderly patients, let's say, with dementia, who would say, well, if I get pneumonia, I just want you to let me go. But pneumonia wasn't considered a terminal illness. And their death, certain easy to treat, and their death from dementia was certainly not imminent anytime soon. And so it was pretty routine that patients like that kept having their lives rescued when they didn't want them rescued. So in 99, as we were working to make a lot of changes, we redefined terminal illness under Texas law, and we uh defined it in such a way that we said a patient is terminally ill if in reasonable medical judgment, their death is expected within six months, even with treatment. So even if I'm going to treat the patient for cancer or heart failure or what have you, if we expect death within six months, which some of your listeners will know would be the hospice standard, right? Correct. Um, we would define that patient now as terminal. Death no longer had to be imminent. And then for irreversible illness, we separated that out and we gave what we call a functional diagnosis. Some states were saying, well, if you're terminal or you have the vegetative state, and we didn't want to get trapped in that. So we said if you're terminal, um, that would be one definition. Irreversible would be you have a condition that's uh, treatable but never goes away leaves you permanently unable to communicate, make your wishes known, take care of yourself. And if you stopped treatment, you would pass away. So that covered not only the vegetative state, but it covered conditions like progressive advanced dementia. The other thing we did that was at the time fairly unique was we changed the living will to be a document that allows patients to say either I want everything done to maintain my life even if I'm terminal or even if I'm irreversible or I want everything stopped other than those treatments needed to maintain my comfort. So the Living Will in Texas in 99 became a document to either request a continuation of treatment in the setting of a terminal or irreversible illness or request a transition to comfort only treatment in the setting of a terminal or irreversible illness. One last thing we did that I think was fairly unique was we made it clear in the law that the only type of treatment that could not be um, withheld was the treatment necessary for a patient's comfort.
0: And is that like pain medicine or... Yeah, yeah. Well, it goes into the question, I, I just listening to you, not to backtrack, it just seems like <laughs> you had to pave the way You and many of your colleagues back in the early 80s were doing palliative care, but it wasn't defined. I mean, what was it like to see the needs of patients in the late 80s and 90s? and not really call it a specialty i mean you were paving the way
1: i I think if you talk to anybody of my generation um if you talk to rich Payne, if you talk to andy billings well andy's no longer alive if you talk to his wife susan block dr susan block again one of the, the giants and pioneers in the field um it was um a little lonely a little isolating a little confusing because we were all feeling our way along trying to figure out how to bring a new kind of service to patients and families uh, that institutions weren't used to providing and weren't, frankly, incentivized to provide. I think Diane Meyer would, would tell you the same, same thing.
0: And a lot of also your own medical culture, your colleagues not really understanding what you're trying to do probably was one of the hardest things to, to bear.
1: Correct. A lot, a lot of people, yeah, a lot of people thought I was a hospice doctor and I kept saying, no, I'm not trying to do hospice. Hospice is wonderful. It's the gold standard for when you're now really at the very end of your life. But what about all the suffering that goes on? What about the emotional suffering that happens the day the patient is told you have metastatic cancer or you have ALS? Or you have end-stage heart failure, and we're going to try to get you a transplant. But unfortunately, most patients who would benefit from a transplant won't get a heart transplant because somebody else has to die for you to get a heart. So um, we were, to me, a lot of the focus was on suffering. In fact, I, we sometimes end our morning huddles. I'll, I'll, you know, We'll say, let's go out there and stomp out some suffering. Let's go find out where the suffering is, not just the physical suffering, but how's that patient or that family doing emotionally? How are they adjusting to the illness? What gives them the strength to carry on? How can we help them find the strength to carry on?
0: Well, and when you ask people to, like, what, what are you afraid of when it comes to end of life? They say suffering almost like nine out of ten times.
1: Yep, that's exactly right. But then if you ask them what they mean by suffering, you find a lot of different things.
0: Absolutely.
1: Yes, some are afraid of physical pain, but um, there's a lot of spiritual suffering that goes on. And that's one reason that, for example, pastoral care is a is a key part of a of a true palliative care team. Absolutely key part. Um, not everyone is religious, but almost everybody's spiritual. I I would argue that our brains are wired to sense of connectedness to the other to something bigger than ourselves and some people reach that spiritual connection through organized religion but others uh, seek that spiritual connection in other ways so there are different kinds of suffering and you have to ask the patient um literally how can we help
0: and i think that's key uh you know, just to reiterate, you know, I read this article published in D Magazine. It was published in October 2017. And what caught my attention was the title and this huge, beautiful picture of you. This And the caption was, this man wants to help you die better. And the article goes on to say that your goal or your team's goal is to not save your life from a serious illness, but rather preserve the quality of it. And, and we were just talking that certain questions have to be asked, and we in the healthcare industry have to be quiet and listen. And that is, how do you and your team define quality when it comes to individualized patient care? Is that about asking the question?
1: Yeah, that you, you have to ask the patient. I'm going to go back and say one thing. That was a, a very nice article that was written about me and about palliative care, but it, it's not that we don't want to save lives. We want to help patients live their life as well as they can until they die if they, in fact, have a terminal illness. And there are patients who now live with um, cancer that will not be cured, but they may live with it for 10, 15, 20 years. How do we help them do that? Somebody who gets, as our director of heart transplantation says, you know, everybody who we transplant a new heart into will still die someday. Right? And they, now they're living with this transplanted heart. Or if you look at patients on hemodialysis in this country, median survival is 3.8 years. Most people don't think of end stage kidney disease on dialysis as a terminal condition. But the suffering with end stage kidney disease is bad enough that in any given year, about 10% of dialysis patients say, I'm done. I'm not doing this dialysis anymore. Once they do that, they're going to pass away typically within 7 to 14 days. So it, it we want to help people live as well as they can, live on their terms in the face of serious and terminal illness. Um, and that, that's, a, that's a key distinction. I would say the hospice doctor at that point, they're saying, yes, I want to help you die as well as you can. That's where the focus is that hospice is that small subset of this bigger palliative care service population. Uh, Another way to think of it, Kimberly, would be if you looked, if you went to the Center to Advance Palliative Care website, you would see that robust palliative care programs in American hospitals generally serve somewhere between five and 10 percent of hospitalized patients at any given time hospice serves the less than one percent of us who die in any given year wow less than one percent of all americans will die in any given year so again out of care great big circle of care hospice much smaller circle of care Hmm. now back to your quality (laughs) defining quality of life it's not what i say the patient's quality of life is it's what they say it is
0: and it's about asking the question yeah and you have to ask the question And, and
1: and uh, you know we'll, we'll typically walk in the room and say, hi, I'm Dr. Fine, I'm from the Supportive and Palliative Care Team. They kind of look at you and sometimes they say, who? And sometimes they say, oh yeah, Dr. Smith told me you were coming. And I'll say, yeah, we support patients and families when there's a serious illness and we palliate. That means we treat pain and other suffering in the setting of that serious illness. Would it be okay if we talk now? And they all go, yeah. And then I literally sit down and say, so tell me what's going on. How are you doing? And we ask a lot of open-ended questions, and we kind of see what's coming out. Eventually, there are a lot of questions we get answered, such as what are their hopes? What are their fears? If they can't be cured, what other goals are important to them? What trade-offs are they willing to make? To, to get a certain outcome? Um, where do they find the strength to cope? Um, we, we ask all science, all sorts of questions.
0: It's really interesting to me, not living within an acute setting uh, and, and everyday life. It's, it comes up to like, what types of questions do you and your palliative care team get to help um, other families know that these questions are okay to ask. Um, because you're in the dark, but what are the, I don't know, top three, top five questions that you feel that you experience on a consistent basis from families and patients that, that you have an opportunity to kind of, I guess, help us with before we even get to an acute setting?
1: Sure. So wh- whether we're seeing a patient in the hospital or in the office, and um, again, lots of palliative care is outpatient and office based. And in some circumstances, it's even home-based. We don't do that in our healthcare system yet. We've not evolved to that that level. But um, the the questions can come in any of those settings. And there's one set of questions that are just very practical about um, the patient's understanding of their diagnosis and their family's understanding their understanding of their treatment options, and their understanding of prognosis. And there's so many questions about that. In hospitals, are much like Towers of Babel. And there's a doctor for every organ system. And we often walk in and we say, well, tell me what you understand about your condition. What have you heard the other doctors say? And a typical answer is, we don't understand. Mm. Or we're getting contradictory messages. Mm. And so, one thing we wind up being are translators
0: Mm, good point
1: you know like like translating a foreign language for them as patients approach um so after trying to answer the diagnostic uh, treatment option and prognostic questions um there are sometimes questions about, especially if the patient is looking at their mortality sooner rather than later, they may say, well, will I be in pain? Will I suffer? So there are those practical questions about um, the process of dying. Um, Those are the most common questions we get asked. We get asked lots of questions about how we're going to make their pain better. About half of the patients we see um, were asked to see because there's a pain or other suffering crisis, and they have all kinds of questions and misunderstandings about the drugs we use to treat symptoms. Right now, with all the stuff about opioids and addiction, there's a tremendous amount of questioning about, am I going to become addicted to this drug, and so we have to deal with that on a regular basis.
0: Sure. Sure. And you know, there was a Washington Post article about how hospice and end of life might be contributed to that. I I, I told I called them out. I was like, you know, that is probably the least least area of confusion in the whole medical system. And um, I was a little bit upset with with that whole directive article. I, I think we need to be aware of it, but I will say this. I have worked with seasoned hospice and palliative care clinicians right down from an MD, PA, uh, NP, um, and that is always in the back of their mind is is the patient in pain and am I uh, prescribing it to for them to still have some functionality but also lessen the pain because we all know when you're in pain you don't have quality right for sure
1: yeah i've actually i've never seen a palliative care patient including ones who've, who've lived and i continue to treat for years who developed addiction i've seen addicts who develop uh, painful terminal illnesses and they are more challenging to treat. They're very openly tolerant, but they need to be treated. Sure. And I've never seen a patient with, um, let's just say, incurable cancer that they're living with for varying lengths of time develop addiction. Never. And that goes back to way before there was such a thing as palliative medicine.
0: Mm. Well, here's the million-dollar question, um, which has to do more with, how we take care of individuals taking care of those facing a serious illness i've talked to many palliative care physicians many hospice physicians and and there's a lot of burnout and you know we're we're in the medical culture are we we evolving to take better care of individuals who are at the bedside of the dying i mean what do you do to recharge Um, because you see a lot of deaths, um, you know, how do you take care of yourself and how do you inspire your team to take care of themselves as they're at the bedside?
1: So, um, several comments as a, uh, healthcare system or non-system of American medicine, we do a lousy job of this, as you well know, um, at an individual level, um, I meditate, I exercise, I play my guitar. Um, my wife notes I often sing uh more somber serious songs and that she figures that's a way I sometimes process um my own grief and dealing with the loss of patience. Um, I drink a little scotch. <laughs> um,
0: I those, knew I like to. All,
1: those are all personal things. Um, I think in palliative care teams, we start um, every morning with a team huddle and we support each other in team huddle. Um, Different personalities come to the fore, uh, different nurturing. And if we sense that a colleague is um, in distress over a hard case, we say, hey, let, let us take this case off your shoulders. This case is going to be is is obviously just too difficult it's striking too close to home let us help take that off of you so we we support each other a lot um the last thing i'd say we do that we're trying to do a better job of on our own programs is actually um, limit the number of consults any one professional does and that means learning to say no there's a there's a tremendous amount of sacrifice that goes on in all of medicine. It, it is a, a calling if it's well done. Um, and I think that, <clears throat> sac- <clears throat> excuse me, I think that degree of sacrifice is even higher in a field like palliative medicine, where you are confronting suffering constantly and confronting the uh, despair of not just the patient, but often the family. Again, a good, a good number of our cases, we're not really working with the patient. They may be comatose in the ICU. We're working with a, a huge family.
0: Probably in shock.
1: Yeah, in all well, going through all the various stages of grief. And one part of the family may be in denial. Another part's in anger. There's another part sitting there. They've been at acceptance for some time, but they can't reach the other members of their family. So dealing with families is, is an art form in and of itself. But... Um, we, we do all those, all those things to support each other, to avoid burnout. And as I said, the last thing is we try, to, we try to cap the number of cases we deal with so that we don't take on more than we can handle. And we try to chase people out of the hospital. You need to go home this afternoon. You need to clear your head. We, we try to take care of each other. I don't know what you'd find from other programs, but I, I suspect it's similar.
0: Yeah, it it is. And, you know, we're we're hoping as end of life evolves even to be more inclusive with patients and families that we don't forget the clinicians, um, at that bedside. Um, and I don't, I don't think you're right. I think we don't do a good job with it. Um, we didn't, the 17 years I was in hospice care, we did the best we could, but these hospice individuals are seeing death on a daily basis. We don't, we don't have mandatory grief sessions for them. Um, and, and we need to do better, and it's just it's scratching the surface because I do see a lot of physicians and NPs that are so talented but just are overwhelmed and burnt out yeah. from it. And, and that's the tragedy uh, of it all is that no one wins um, in that sure. s- situation, not the clinician, not the families, not the patients. Well, how do you see palliative care evolving in Texas even further
1: well, one of our big challenges in Texas is um, a little bit less than half of all hospitals have palliative care teams. And the hospitals that have the most robust palliative care programs tend to be larger hospitals, 200-plus beds. Um, you know, the hospital where we started our palliative care program at Baylor Scott & White was a 1,000-bed campus. It's easier to do this on larger, in larger Air uh, larger hospitals than small ones. So one of the things we hope to see evolve is just the continued growth of the field within the state. Texas, unfortunately, at least in my opinion, unfortunately, did not expand Medicaid under Obamacare, under the Affordable Care Act. And meanwhile, Medicare reimbursements went down. So hospitals in Texas are really struggling financially. The hospitals wanted to expand Medicaid. It's just our our state government did not Um, we've also seen the problem in our state of the for-profit hospitals not wanting to invest in palliative care programs so most of the palliative care programs are in the non-for-profit health care and or public health care sector and we're hoping that um, public demand might encourage the for-profit sector to start building palliative care teams that's That's certainly one of the things I'm kind of praying for, so to speak, because you you shouldn't have to, there are plenty of good doctors at for-profit hospitals. The the type of hospital you happen to go to should not preclude you from getting state-of-the-art care, let's say for advanced cancer. And the American uh, Society of Clinical Oncology now recommends that all patients with metastatic cancer be seen within eight weeks of diagnosis by a palliative care professional.
0: That's awesome though. Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. And so um, it is awesome. And I don't think hardly anybody in the country can meet that demand yet. But we, we hope to see that change. We hope to see it evolve. Another thing that I hope to see evolve personally is you may or may not recall when you asked me my definition, I said we serve patients and families. Uh, a lot of palliative care programs and most of adult medicine says we serve patients. So the cardiologist treats the patient with heart disease. The oncologist treats the patient with cancer and so on. We say that we treat the patient and the family. This is absolutely essential to support that family, to help them deal with their grief, their emotions, give them guidance. If the patient's at home, they're often the support for the patient themselves. If the patient's in the ICU, we're typically not talking to the patient. talking to the family so it's always been and there's by the way there's there's no way to get reimbursed for that you can't you can't submit a charge for family counseling basically but it's an absolutely essential piece of what the best palliative care programs do and then something we've really pioneered at Baylor that we think is absolutely critical we're an adult hospital system we have one pediatric hospital uh, down in Central Texas and all the other hospitals where we have palliative care programs are adult hospitals. Families have children. And I learned early on that I did not know how to communicate in a developmentally appropriate way with a four-year-old as opposed to a 14-year-old when that child's parent or grandparent had a serious or terminal illness or maybe even a terminal to a point where they were imminently dying. I thought, I'm an adult doctor. What do I know about talking to that child or supporting that child? What do they know? So we, we started a um, child life program within our supportive and palliative care program. Uh, it's we're probably getting up near 10 years now. And um, again, it's one of those things, unfortunately, that insurance will pay for, but it's absolutely critical both to the child, but to the adult patient's journey. So we, we see lots of adult patients. Let's talk about that percentage of our patients who are dying in the hospital, about 20% across our system. Um, often they can't have a good death until they are able to communicate effectively with the children they are leaving behind and adult practitioners don't know how to help them have that communication.
0: Does that make sense? Absolutely.
1: So that's another, when you say, where do I see this going? Well, in my own state, I would like to see an expansion of of, uh, palliative care in general across the state. But I think within our field, within the broader national field, there are not a whole lot of programs in the country that um, are focused on serving the children of the seriously ill adult and in particular the adult who's now so seriously ill that they are really at that hospice stage that active stage of dying they have days or weeks to live how are we helping the child process that and, and it's actually become one of the most popular services we provide from families I mean I'll, I'll kind of judge them, well Dr. Fine you You've helped our pain. That's very nice. Thank you so much. But you know who's really great are those child life specialists because that's a huge emotional burden in a family.
0: Well, and we know if we do not get a hold of the grief, especially in these young children, they carry it throughout their entire lives.
1: Right. Exactly right. Exactly right.
0: And it comes out in so many different ways. Exactly right. Well, I can't tell you. I'm so excited to hear... um, what's happening in Texas. I mean, it, it, it's always go big or go home. When I hear about Texas, the only thing <laughs> I have to really not like is that the Dallas Cowboys live there and I'm a Washington Redskin fan. But other than that, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, they, Texas is, is really a, a state that is very interested in expanding palliative care and interested in taking care of those facing end of life. And I will tell my listeners, you know, you've got to check out this magazine article where they talk about you and not to embarrass you, but really how good you are and humble you are. I love the article and I, and I'll attach the article to, um, this podcast on my death by design, um, website, but Dr. Fine, I can't I can't tell you how much I appreciate what you're doing in your community for end of life and palliative care and and hats off to you and your team.
1: Well, Kimberly, thank you and again, uh, my hats off to you because we need public education about these issues.
0: Well, thank you.
1: It's what what you do is is really important and I'll I'll, I'll close with whenever whenever we get a new palliative care consult, we've said well, where did it come from? And most of them come from physicians, but we see a growing number where the family or the patient is saying, we'd like to get a palliative care consult. And that's exciting to us as they, as lay people come to understand that there's this new field out there. And I think the work you do is a really important part of that. So thank you as well.
0: Well, we're all part of the same drumbeat as B.J. Miller says. It's a, yeah. a cadence that I'm very happy to be a small part of and um, of a larger team. So I I really do again thank you for your time I know you're busy taking care of patients and uh, the medical center but this was really important conversation that I thought that we needed to have and hats off to Baylor Medical Center for um, investing in someone like you and and hopefully furthering the palliative care efforts in the state of Texas. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today, and remember, you're the designer.